Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that offers a window to look back into the past and then throws a garbage can through it. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to thank God for the right nipple, thank God for the left nipple. I'm Seth, the host most likely to put some extra mozzarella on that motherfucker and shit. And I'm Becky, the host most likely to begin this episode with an aggressive but captivating dance that goes on for a very long time. (laughs) I really wish that this was a visual medium so you could begin this episode Honestly, like that. Why have we not moved to Zoom already? Come on. Yeah, I did it before I got on the mic with you guys. <laughs> Were you holding your baby? I, that would not be appropriate since my thrust would fling her across the room. It's true. She, Rosie Perez is very thrusty. <laughs> yes. We are recording this episode in early June, a little over a week after widespread demonstrations began in protest of the May 25th murder of George Floyd, a 46-year-old Minneapolis man killed when a police officer kneeled on his neck for nearly nine minutes, making it impossible for him to breathe. He was known as Big Floyd to his loved ones. He was an athlete and a musician. He was called a gentle giant and loved hugs from the clientele at the Latin American nightclub where he worked as a security guard. And he had a six-year-old daughter who lives in Houston. The protests have also widely called for justice for Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old emergency room technician who was shot eight times after Louisville police broke into her home with a battering ram on a no-knock warrant, and Ahmad Aubrey, a 25-year-old jogger who was pursued by two armed white men in a suburban neighborhood and shot in an ensuing confrontation. I think at this point, what's been happening in America this week is known all around the world. Every state has seen demonstrations in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Thousands are protesting daily in major cities, including many cities outside of America that have also joined in. And it's also worth noting that we're still in the middle of a pandemic that has killed well over 100,000 Americans and counting, disproportionately killing Black Americans at three times the rate of white people. So we have decided to shift our schedule a little bit and talk about 1989 Spike Lee film Do the Right Thing. There has been a lot of discussion online about what people can read and watch to facilitate thought and conversations around the Black Lives Matter movement. And Do the Right Thing inevitably comes up on those lists. It's probably the gold standard of movies on fraught race relations, particularly from the area we cover on this podcast from the 80s through the 90s. Before we get into that, uh, we usually talk about the past, but I wanted to open up with my co-hosts and just talk about the present in the past couple weeks because it's obviously going to frame our discussion of this film, but I want to know just kind of what your experience has been and how you guys are holding up through this time. It's hard, Chris. (laughs) Like I knew it was getting really bad when even my supervisor at work texted me over the weekend being like, are you okay? We're here for you. They were doing that for everybody at work. Like I've never gotten a text like that in my working life. It's been emotionally difficult and draining. And I'm almost just feeling very numb 
with everything that's happening, I think that is a defense mechanism because of how much tragedy I'm seeing and, you know, horribleness. And it's hopeful to see people out there protesting and, you know, taking a stand. And there have been even in the last week and a half, small, but, you know, some changes. But I don't think this would have happened without COVID happening in the pandemic. But, you know, after three months of dealing with COVID, like, I just feel so drained from everything that it's hard to get through the day, honestly. Even though I haven't been able to protest because I have to take care of my daughter, who's very young still, I want to be out there protesting, but I'm just watching the news from my phone and my computer and there's always an update. There's always something else wrong happening at these protests with more police brutality and it's it's hard to get through the day. Um, well, I've been very lucky because I've been able to work from home and I've been able to self-isolate. I went today, this is June 7th, to a protest in Hollywood. Went with a protest buddy, which was very reassuring. And the tone and tenor of the protest was just completely positive. I mean, very strong, obviously, and people have a lot of excellent and very pointed signs. But the the atmosphere of the protests was defiant and jubilant. And basically everyone except for maybe a handful of people were wearing masks. Obviously, we couldn't really socially distance all that well. But there was something so powerful about being in a collective with other people to be in our own streets. Again, I do plan on getting a coronavirus test soon, especially in light of having a attended this protest, but I saw almost no police anywhere. The police presence in Hollywood throughout the protest sites were was basically none. And everyone was completely peaceful, even nice and kind and helpful to everyone. There were people all over the place, both in cars and on foot, distributing water and snacks to everyone. There were people distributing hand sanitizer, <laughs> letting you, you know, like swing by and get, get, some, get some hand sanitizer if you wanted it. It was very important to me to be able to attend protests, you know, like once the very obvious and deliberate provocation of the police and of the National Guard was over with. And it seems like hopefully knock on wood that is over with. LA had five days of curfews. And as anyone will know, if they study curfews, those are always racist and classist measures that don't serve to keep us safe. They just serve to criminalize certain people being out in public and being out in their own cities. And so thankfully, there was there was pressure from a potential lawsuit. There was a lot of pressure to stop declaring these curfews. And I'm glad that happened. Again, like we said, we're, we're going on, like going into kind of week two and a half or so of these protests and they're in like all 50 states and like something like 18 countries at this point and given both the subject matter of police brutality and especially given the way that white supremacy is defining pretty much every aspect of our lives right now including the response to the pandemic i think it's never been more important for us to try to show up in every single way we can yeah, uh, my experience is pretty similar to your guys's. Um, I've been both personally, you know, kind of at my wits end a little bit with, mm. you know, we've been, you know, kind of shut in for months now. And then all of this stuff happens that's, you know, really crazy and really upsetting, even to just watch, let alone kind of see um, 
unfolding in your own neighborhood. And yet I've also been really heartened by the kindness that I see. You know, people seem to be kind of actively being more kind to each other day to day, just like in the interactions I've had, you know, walking out and getting, you know, a coffee or something like that. And just in the protests, they've been so positive, especially in the last few days. And so it has been really great to see so many people caring about this issue, so many different kinds of people, you know, coming out from seemingly like everywhere to support this issue. But yeah, I mean, it's been just like kind of a really crazy whirlwind. I mean, we've seen, I think it changed a lot from like last weekend to this weekend. Last weekend is when, you know, it really kind of erupted and there was a a crazy amount of police brutality that continued for several days. I think what you're rightly picking up on is like there's been a very deliberate shift by both the police in California and especially in Los Angeles and they removed the National Guard. Um, And I do think that that is directly what changes the energy because, you know, those initial first few days of protests were, you know, very militant and very loud. Um, But really, for the vast, vast majority, all of these protests have been peaceful um, until the police show up in their tanks with their assault rifles and their full body armor and until they have been wielding chemical weapons, uh, like tear gas is a chemical weapon, and America, it's banned in use in wartime in other countries, uh, but that is a weapon that America's police wield against our own people. Um, so there's been that chemical warfare, there's been just beating the shit out of people with batons, um, there have been kettling techniques where police corral people and split them off from larger groups, Um, Again, in order just to antagonize them and hopefully get them to react in a violent way so they can then be arrested and criminalized. Um, But I think you're right, Chris, that like the the atmosphere of the protests has very markedly changed. Um, And I'll be honest that like this was this weekend was kind of the first moment where I really fully felt completely comfortable joining a protest kind of specifically for that reason. Yeah. I mean, the police, the things that we've seen from the police are frankly quite shocking. And I think more shocking, not because they happen, but because the police know that they're being recorded and that all eyes in the world are on them right now. And they still feel completely entitled and enabled to commit violence against people. I really can't, fathom how that response seems like the best response to a protest against police violence. Um, and so it's been really eye-opening to just see that in, in mass. Like, we know that it happens, you know, far too often, um, you know, to individuals. And we've seen, you know, individual videos of that. But to see it happening to masses of people and all kinds of people um, was really just like very almost apocalyptic <laughs> looking. Yeah, of course, because it was. I mean, we are surrounded by moments that reveal the truth about what kind of collective reality uh, we're all inhabiting. But this one especially is revealing the fact that our police forces, we all knew already that they don't exist to protect and serve. But at this point, it should be clear to everyone that they don't see themselves as working for our government. 
or for democracy. They see themselves as their own government, their own authority that is answerable to no one and can be limited by no one, not just by the people who live in these places they're supposed to protect and serve, but not even by the elected officials who supposedly oversee these police all over the country. Um, And that's especially true in L.A., Our leaders have planted themselves at the feet of police chiefs. Uh, And in L.A., our our mayor, Eric Garcetti, completely supplicated himself before LAPD chief Michael Moore. Even after last week, Chief Moore accused the looters from these protests uh, as having the blood of George Floyd on their hands. I'm a political junkie, and so I follow all this stuff way too closely as it is. But even this has been incredibly eye-opening for me. Yeah, I think, obviously, this is something that's going to continue, and you know, we'll see how things go. I mean, we've seen some changes made, I think, really just as a result of pressure, not coming from soul-searching necessarily. But mm-hmm. um, No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's all? But, you know, I, I do, I don't know, <laughs> I hope. And I do see a lot of evidence of hope. You know, there's all, there's a lot of scary stuff, too. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I hope that change is made. Yeah. Speaking only for myself, this has been the first hope that I've felt in a really long time. I am not someone who really believes in hope. And I've had to personally learn how to persist in life, even when I don't have hope. And to be very frank, the past several months of lockdown have had so many traumatic events and also had so much bad news elsewhere in my life that I thought there was really only one possible destiny for all of this. I thought the worst possible outcome had already been sealed in, and whether or not there was going to be some big upheaval with that, I just really felt a sense of doom and have felt it for a long time. But now, in this moment, with this amount of people in the streets acting together, with this level of awareness and inquisitiveness and curiosity about what's really going on, to a level I've never seen in my life, nor really read about happening at any point in our lifetimes, I do have hope. And I want to say that what I have hope in is not any one goal, but I have hope in struggle. I have hope in our ability and willingness to collectively struggle and find common struggles to align around that I did not have hope in even three or four weeks ago. Yeah, I think I feel that as well. The old cliche is like, it's always darkest before the dawn, but it does feel like all this darkness is at least, you know, kind of hinting that it could go in some positive directions. Um, When we've, you know, we've had a rough four years. And rough decades before that too, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. And it just feels like so much of that, not just the last four years, but it feels like so many of those decades where it was clear we didn't make progress, where it was clear we were backsliding. It feels like all of that was building to it, too. So as we get into discussing uh, the film for the day, Do the Right Thing, um, we also do want to acknowledge up front that we are three white people discussing this film, (laughs) and that's the perspective that we're bringing to it. I think the most valuable perspectives on this movie, especially right now, would come from Black Americans who are still living with racism. This movie is being discussed everywhere right now, I think, and so I would definitely defer to those conversations as you know some of the most important you can listen to right now. I think we're going to have an interesting and thoughtful conversation, but I just want wanted to acknowledge those limitations before we go into it. 
And we've been wanting to do this movie for a while. Yeah. So we kind of just pushed it up because I think we all were thinking about this movie anyway with everything that's going on. And so that's why it's uh, happening now. Yeah, absolutely. Like we'll go into, but you know, this is just one of those movies that's like endlessly fascinating to talk about and that, you know, hasn't lost any sort of discussion power, you know, in the last 30 years. Shelton Jackson Lee was born March 20th, 1957 in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm, I'm sorry, what, what is Spike Lee's real name? Shelton Jackson Lee. Shelton? Shelton? Yes. Now you can see why it goes by Spike. Yeah. <laughs> is, I think I've seen his show, Young Shelton. <laughs> <laughs> I would 1,000% watch a show about the young Spike Lee. <laughs> I totally would too. Holy shit. Let's pitch that. Don't steal that idea, <laughs> listeners. Um, I think, actually, Spike Lee needs to be the one to do I don't think we can just pitch that without Spike Lee knowing. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're the only people qualified to tell the story. <laughs> oh, God. The nickname Spike came from his mother because he was tough. The family moved to Brooklyn when he was a child, and he got his MFA in film from NYU. His first film, She's Gotta Have It, was released in 1986. It was made for $175,000, grossing over $7 million. Uh, it's a dramedy about three guys competing for the same woman, one played by Spike Lee himself. His next film was 1988 School Days, based on Lee's undergrad studies at a historically black college. Lee co-starred along with Lawrence Fishburne and several cast members who would go on to join him in his next film, which was Do the Right Thing. So I read Spike Lee's journal about the making of this film. It was written in late 1987 and 1988. And it was really interesting um, seeing him put all of this together, like piece by piece. A lot of it was really right there. But, you know, there were a lot of ideas that he kind of tried and then threw out. And he had this cast in mind for almost all of the roles like up front, but he would kind of shift them around to different roles. So it was just really interesting, you know, kind of getting in Spike Lee's head for this movie and, and, and seeing how it was conceived. You know, now we know Spike Lee as one of the most prolific filmmakers about social issues, uh, if not the most prolific. But like at the time, he was known as a comedy director and he felt like this film was going to seem like just another Spike Lee comedy and then kind of pull the rug out from people in the in the riot scene and as it you know kind of dealt more and more with the racial issues in question he really wrestled with how far to go with certain elements whether or not anyone would be killed whether or not to include drugs yeah so it was like interesting to see him kind of like put that in in one point and then take it back out and and kind of hear his reasoning why he did all that he originally pursued robert de niro for the role of sal hmm. de niro was a acquaintance of his 
Um, and he thought De Niro was such an icon for Italian Americans that it would really fuck them up to see De Niro in a movie that was all about the black perspective. Would Robert De Niro's face still have been on the wall of the pizza joint? I don't know. That would be so weird because he actually also made a joke while he was still considering De Niro in his um, diaries that he was like, he was going to have them like call Sal, the Corleone family and, and like maybe even like hum the Godfather theme at him. So I'm kind of surprised he didn't put that back in just to like fuck with De Niro for turning it down. Yeah, I kind of love that. He also wanted Lawrence Fishburne, who had worked with in School Days, to play Radio Raheem originally, and Matt Dillon as Pino, the um, older son of Sal. But they both also passed on the movie. But otherwise, you know, his cast was all the actors that he wanted. Um, this cast is stacked. Yeah, this cast yeah. is crazy good. Let's name them. <laughs> Spike Lee. I, I, I can name them. It stars Spike Lee as Mookie, Danny Aiello as Sal. Bill Nunn as Radio is, Raheem. What else is Danny Aiello in? He looked really familiar to me. He's in Moonstruck. <gasps> that's, oh, that's how I know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how that's I know right. him. That's it. He's great in Moonstruck. He's great in that movie. I went the entire movie and did not recognize Giancarlo Esposito. <laughs> yeah, he looks really different. Oh, really? I mean, once I was like, oh my God, that was him. I was like, okay, now I see it. But like, he's um, Gus on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And he, I just, maybe he's just such a good actor that I'm just like, he's not talking like how he usually talks, <laughs> but that's like, he's putting on <laughs> an accent in those shows. Uh, I well, it's not completely a night and day character because like it Gus really is. is so silently menacing and like barely mm-hmm. says a word and he just like stares at you and you feel like he's going to kill you. Whereas his character here, Bugging Out, is like a total loud mouth and I think his bark is much worse than his bite. And um, so it's just, yeah, like completely different, not to mention like a couple of decades was he like a working actor this entire time in between Do the Right Thing and, oh, yeah. and Breaking yeah, Bad? Yeah. Because I didn't know who he was until Breaking Bad, but he apparently he's been in lots of things. I'm not sure how many of Spike Lee's movies he was in, but a lot of these actors particularly like just, you know, kind of came back for many other Spike Lee joints. Uh, to round out the rest of the cast, there's Ossie Davis as DeMare, Ruby D as Mother Sister, John Turturro as Pino, Rosie Perez as Tina and Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senior Love Daddy. Samuel L. Jackson has always looked the same age, no matter what <laughs> like movie, like in his career I see. But but seeing John Turturro young like threw me for a loop. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> we also got a young uh, Martin Lawrence because uh, this was his first movie. I was very happy to to note that he was not one of the main characters in this movie because I find him really obnoxious. <laughs> one of the other actors that was a first-timer for Spike Lee was Rosie Perez. She was actually a first-timer in any movie. Um, he met her dancing on a speaker at a club in Los Angeles at his birthday party. He asked her to get down so she wouldn't hurt herself and like he wouldn't get sued. And she cussed him out. So he was like, this is this is my Tina. So, <laughs> And he also was like, the, the reason why was that when he heard her voice cussing him out, he's like, she's from my neighborhood. Yeah, it turned out they were like, yeah, from a few blocks away from each other. Spike Lee cited In the Heat of the Night as one of his influences. And that was another movie mm. about racial tensions flaring up on a hot summer day. And that movie won Best Picture back in 1968, less than one week after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. 
the Oscar telecast had to be delayed so stars like Sidney Poitier could attend his funeral. And it was also a week when there were a bunch of riots all across the country happening. So I thought that was an interesting comparison. And if anyone out there hasn't seen In the Heat of the Night, I saw it very recently, like was lucky to see it on film in a theater. That movie is still stupendous. It holds up so, so well. It doesn't age poorly like you would expect a 50 some odd year old movie about race relations to be. It could have been made yesterday. It's really fantastic. Absolutely. I've been kind of studying that movie and all the films of 1967 a little bit recently. And that one, I agree, like it really holds up. And uh, there's a moment in it where Sidney Poitier, who plays a detective, is slapped by a white racist and he just slaps him back. And it was one of the most shocking moments in film um, back then because, you know, this is still an incredibly racist society. Not that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we've seen, it hasn't improved as much as we'd like nearly, but it still really holds up. I'd like to second what Seth just said. It was also the first film featuring a Black lead to win Best Picture, as well as the first to seriously confront racism. And it was also the last until Driving Miss Daisy won 32 years later, the same Mm. year Do the Right Thing was released. So, yeah, I mean, that was 1967. (laughs) That movie came out and really the Oscars pretty much completely ignored um, Black filmmakers and Black movies way past Driving Miss Daisy because that was not... I think the first black filmmaker to, to get nominated for Best Director was John Singleton with Boys in the Hood, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. What was that? Ni- 19... It was the early 90s. I think 92. Right? The environment was not, shall we say, super conducive to black films, especially black films you know, that were a part of the awards conversation. Do the Right Thing was released July 21st, 1989. It had a budget of $6 million and it grossed $26 million. The Metacritic score now is 92, so it was mostly widely praised, although with exceptions that I think we'll talk about. Really? Some people didn't like it? <laughs> I know you read that article. <laughs> it was nominated for two Academy Awards, uh, one for Danny Aiello, who lost to Denzel Washington in Glory. Also, wow. Best Original Screenplay, uh, Spike Lee's Screenplay, which was a really stacked year. The other nominees were When Harry Met Sally, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and Dead Poet Society. And Dead Poet Society was wow. the winner. Yeah, I mean, all of those feel very <laughs> deserving. So it's it's hard to yeah, be mad. Really, seriously, most of those are really good movies, but especially in terms of writing. Yeah. yeah. It was also nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It lost to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Although, apparently, there were seven jurors and six of them hated the movie. One of them didn't, and that was Sally Field. (laughs) (laughs) We always were on Team Sally Field. You can't be against Sally Fields. I mean, come on. No. Do the Right Thing is also number 96 on the American Film Institute list of the 100 greatest films of all time. It's the only film from a black filmmaker on that list and one of only two made by a non-white filmmaker. So it's pretty much uh, carrying the torch for black filmmakers um, and all, all kinds of non-white movies, basically. Jeez. Are there any women on that list? Probably not either. Nope. Mm. Let's move on from that. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your guys' history with Do the Right Thing, as well as Spike Lee in general? I think I've only seen this movie once before. I think it was in film school. I I remember not really liking it, (laughs) to be honest. Uh, I didn't have positive opinions about it. I don't want to say much more because we're going to talk about how I feel about it now. I have to admit I'm not that big a Spike Lee fan. Um, I've seen... I've seen Malcolm X. I remember liking it, although it's been a very long time. I did not like Black Klansmen uh, for many reasons. Um, I've seen some random movies of his. I think I like The 25th Hour, but like 
everything else I've just either turned off halfway through or it didn't appeal to me or I watched the whole thing and just didn't like it. So I think he's somebody that I respect and I'm glad he's, you know, making movies. Um, and I'm glad that he has a voice in the film industry um, and yet that he's creating art. But I think that he's just never been like a big, like I've never been a big fan of his work um, personally. Um, well, I definitely did not see <laughs> Do the Right Thing when it came out. <laughs> I was uh, five at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, you'll all be surprised to know that Do the Right Thing was not a home-taped VHS <laughs> that was available in our home movie collection. No? Was it available at uh, McDonald's uh, to purchase? <laughs> no, I don't think I ever saw it at McDonald's or at any gas stations. Yeah, no toys? No, to- no Happy Meal toys with Do the Right Thing? <laughs> Yeah, I kept going back and asking for them, but I guess they ran out. I'll also say this. Growing up white in a white flight middle class suburb in New Orleans, I would definitely hear about Spike Lee's movies whenever they came out. They were kind of always cinematic events in New Orleans, which probably isn't very surprising. It's not a huge movie town itself. But we've had a strong movie culture for a long time. So I don't specifically remember how this movie in particular was received. But from my experience of it, Spike Lee's movies would always be something I would hear about and that everyone in my family would dismiss any chance of us seeing. It was very much the case that movies like this would just be referred to as black movies and not with the same valence that we're using it here. Hmm. I would hear people saying black movies in the sense of dismissing them as a valid movie option that we would enjoy or get something out of. So I did not see Do the Right Thing until it must have been college, and I think it was on a list of movies that we had to watch before freshman year. And I was immediately blown away by it, even the very first time I saw it, just how vibrant and spirited and alive it feels. And we'll get into all the other things I think and enjoy about this movie, but even from the first time I saw it, I loved it. I haven't seen that many other Spike Lee movies. Um, I really enjoyed The 25th Hour, and I really enjoyed When the Levees Broke, which is his documentary about Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath in New Orleans and what was rebuilt and what wasn't rebuilt. That was a very beautifully made and gut-wrenching watch for someone who was born and raised in New Orleans. And at the time, I was learning more about the ways that race and racism impacted how that disaster impacted my hometown. So even though I've not seen as many Spike Lee movies as I ought to, and I'm really excited to see more now, uh, I've really appreciated and in many cases loved the movies of his that I've seen. Yeah, I can definitely relate with both of those things, actually, because I remember seeing posters for Spike Lee movies in the video store. I think He Got Game is the one that's kind of seared in my brain because it was (laughs) the right time. Definitely. I totally saw that poster at Blockbuster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in 98. But at the time, I wasn't really watching R-rated adult dramas. So really, a lot of those 90s movies kind of were a little bit too mature for me. But I know that I had a feeling that these movies were kind of not for me, you know, that they were probably confronting issues that I wasn't quite ready to understand, or, you know, that I didn't have quite an interest yet in pursuing the way that I'm sort of interested in those things now. And, you know, I think I had the sense that they were almost scary. You know, that 
I was a similar to horror films or very violent films. I was like wondering, like, am I ready to watch this kind of thing? And it was just, it had this kind of taboo feel that like, I don't know how aware I was of like a lot of the criticism, but it does feel like some of the things that critics were saying about do the right thing about, you know, how it might cause riots and, and how angry it was might have, you know, somehow seeped into me and, and made me kind of almost afraid of these films. And so I never saw a Spike Lee movie up until 2002 and the 25th hour. And as a Spike Lee movie, I mean, that I mean, I think I just saw it because it was, you know, a new movie that was being critically acclaimed. But that was a good gateway in because I, I count that as one of you know, my favorite movies of that era. I think it's a really, really great film. And I did see Do the Right Thing um, at some point, I think in 2008. And I know I thought it was, you know, a good film, but it didn't really grab me on that viewing. I saw that my Netflix star rating from back then was three stars (laughs) out of five stars. So good, but not a favorite. And yeah, I mean, I've mostly kept up. Like I saw Chirac and I saw Black Klansman, both of which I thought had like really good things, but neither was like my favorite film. And then last year, uh, the criterion uh, for Do the Right Thing came out and something just like really drew me to it that like for one, maybe because like criterions have such rich extras that you can really dive into and make you appreciate almost any movie more, you know, than you do going into it. And so I bought it just kind of being like, you know, I think I'm going to enjoy this experience. And so I had seen it recently, very recently. But yeah, I mean, I, I really am now shaming myself a little bit for kind of ghettoizing him as a filmmaker and, you know, just kind of thinking those films are not, you know, something I need to explore because he is one of the major filmmakers of the last 35 years. And he's made a lot of really interesting work, a lot of um, really you know, socially relevant work. And so part of, you know, doing this podcast and and watching more of his films, um, I also watched Malcolm X and uh, Bamboozled this week and just, yeah, it really renewed my interest in him as a filmmaker. I've been meaning to watch Malcolm X again. I watched it when I was pretty young, like ninth grade or something. I'm ashamed to say I still haven't seen it. I really do want to see it, though. It's probably better you watch it now than when I was in ninth grade, because you'll yeah. get a lot more out of it, I think, than what I did as a ninth grader. Yeah, I would I would definitely recommend it. It was a, re- a really good watch, and I actually want to watch it again now, even though I just watched it a few days ago, just to <laughs> kind of take it in a little further. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity-flop. I have today's forecast for you. Hot! The color for today is black. That's right, black, so you can absorb some of these rays and save that heat for winter. So you want to get on out there, wear that black, and be involved. So we just watched Do the Right Thing again. What did you guys think of it? I have watched Do the Right Thing probably four or five times in the past couple of years, including this time. And it is fast becoming one of my favorite movies ever. It is so alive and so fucking vibrant. There's so many elements of it that I'm sure we'll go like point by point on. But just on every single level from the writing to the casting to the tone and atmosphere of it to the cinematography to the soundtrack 
It is just such a living and breathing movie. And every single time I watch it, I'm brought into this world. I'm brought into the experiences of each of the characters as the kind of vignette-based structure of the movie goes along. And I'm so just drawn into the levels and quality and craft of suspense that follows every character in this movie, but especially that follows Mookie, Spike Lee's character, as he lives and works in this neighborhood and seems so inert uh, until the moment that he isn't inert, until the moment that he acts. Yeah, I just, I, I love this movie and I really found watching it an incredibly powerful experience this time, especially. I feel like watching it again made me realize just like what I was looking for with a movie back when I first saw it. I think I expected like perfection for movies. I don't think this movie is perfect, but I really appreciate it a lot more now as an adult. It feels messy and raw and a little sloppy, but it really has this energy to it and this like unfiltered voice. And it's very entertaining to watch and and just to look at. It's very vibrant that I really did enjoy watching it this time. I think it reminded me of when we rewatched Magnolia and I just thought like, you know, this this movie is kind of all over the place or some things could have been tighter or... But the whole experience of watching it was just really fascinating. It made me very sad <laughs> that this movie was made 30 years ago and we are still dealing with almost the exact same things. It gave me a lot to think about and I think that makes up for any, you know, parts that I think are flawed or, or whatever. Like I thought the overall experience was was really great. Yeah, you guys have both used a word that um, is kind of the first one that strikes me, which is vibrant. First of all, the look of the film is just so colorful and constantly like doing different things with the camera and the style and the storytelling as well. You know, there's moments where characters are speaking directly to the camera or the camera is tilted at a Dutch angle. And there's really just always something to look at. And, and very few of the scenes are very long. Like you're constantly moving between this character and that character and yeah I mean it's just like I feel like I could spend an entire day in this world I'm always kind of surprised when um the movie like finally moves into like the final act and which is more of sort of a plot driven because before then it's very meandering you know it's building to something but it's also it feels just kind of like people hanging out and you're checking in over here and over there and so I'm always just like perfectly comfortable doing that and and just like oh now I get to hang out with these people again like I'm, I'm happy about that and then when the plot comes in it's like oh that that whole part is over like that just felt like such a breeze to me I actually watched this movie And then started it right over and watched it with the commentary and just like sat through it twice, you know, like right in a row without even moving because it was just like that inviting to kind of rewind and revisit it. So yeah, I mean, I agree with Becky that there's some kind of rough edges in terms of the filmmaking or things that could be, you know, more polished, um, which I think is true of a lot of Spike Lee movies. They still have those rough edges, but particularly in this one, you know, I, I feel like they almost add to it and make it kind of more lovable and more human. And, and I really enjoyed watching this. I think, I think every time I've watched this movie, I've appreciated it more. So where should we start? We're done. (laughs) We like it. Uh, Let's start with the opening, you know, the, the dance sequence. What do you guys do? How do you guys feel about that opening? It's very iconic. 
not just iconic, like, it really is, I think, one of the best opening sequences in any movie ever. Ever. Yeah, I love it. It feels like it's cut right out of West Side Story or something like that. It it makes the movie immediately kind of feel like a musical. The hard rhythm of it, of course, also, like, brings you into just that world and the pulse of it so effortlessly and just immediately sets off the pace of the movie like you know it's gonna be banging you know it's gonna be hot as hell and also it's such a debut for rosie perez i think i i love her so much in this movie i mean i basically have loved her in any movie that i've seen rosie perez in but it's so easy for me to see just literally straight from the first frame why he cast her It is a good uh, indication of the movie to come because it's such a choice to to start your movie with this dance number. I mean, it's not really choreography, Mm -hmm. but it kind of like it feels very raw and natural like movement to the music. And she's on a stage. So I watched this with my husband who had never seen it before. And he's like, wow, this set looks really fake. (laughs) Like, I think he thought the rest of the movie was going to be like on that set and look like a movie set. And it clearly isn't like that. But it was just a very big choice to to set it like that like not actually have it look real but like look way over the top to start your movie with like it's definitely attention grabbing yeah i love it i love this sort of announcement that like hey we're like in a movie world now you know it's like yeah and and like you could easily cut the sequence out in terms of you know story and everything like it you wouldn't miss it in that way but it definitely just feels so vital you know to the movie in a way and even like she's not the main character you know she's not even you know that significant of a character in the movie in terms of what happens but um like becky said it feels like a choice like i can't intellectualize this choice of like what does she represent in that and i don't think that that's really what it's about it's just like this is his you know vision for it It was like i want to start the movie this way and it in that way it feels perfect because it is such a choice you know what it's not a choice though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no. So there, I feel like the score of this movie does not fit the movie because when I when I started the DVD, which maybe is a couple years old, it felt like music that would be from Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> like it's just like here on Spike Lee Farms. <laughs> like it's just like it's oh. very strange music. But I think that mm. music is also in the movie. Like that's one of parts of the original score. It's just very strange. <laughs> I don't know if you guys Spike Lee would not enjoy that. His dad is actually the composer. I don't find it discordant at all. I really, I find that the hip hop in the soundtrack and also those orchestral pieces and elements really go well together and complement each other well, especially in the sense of the kind of generational clashes and the generations that come together in this movie, where the orchestral elements feel more, again, like a West Side Story, like a Sondheim or Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that itself would have might have been set in New York, maybe even in the same part of New York, just in a very different era. And clearly the music of the young people at that time and the music that was the most vital and the most vitally Black. I love... And I like have grown an appreciation for the kind of juxtaposition of those kinds of music together in this movie. Yeah, I liked the score too. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but there were a couple of moments when I felt that it was really working. 
I also, how the film after the opening dance number goes right into him saying, wake up. And it's such, like, that was one of Spike Lee's early ideas, like, to start the film that way. For one, it, like, grabs your attention because it's like, okay, I better pay attention to this. Samuel L. Jackson is telling me to wake up and I better do what Samuel L. Jackson mm-hmm. is telling me to do. Uh, <laughs> he tells me when to go the fuck to sleep. He tells me when to wake up. <laughs> Having this kind of slightly a narrator character, um, although he like serves kind of more of a comedic function than he's really telling us that much about the action. I just, yeah, really enjoy that character and another just like kind of really like vibrant thing that like grabs your attention right away and kind of tells you what kind of world we're in, which is, you know, it's kind of like offbeat. It's a little surreal. It's not yeah. totally like this guy is going to be broadcasting from a window in a neighborhood, you know, it's a little theatrical, but it, it sets the tone for that. Totally. And I, and I love what it reminded me of this time was the Wolfman character in American Graffiti, who's like the radio announcer in that. And the purpose is not necessarily to like telegraph exactly what's coming in the story or in the plot, but it's more to like help keep the tempo, mm-hmm. you know, of like, here's the next chapter of this. Here's the next little vignette. Here's the next turn in this day. And again, and I just think between the writing of it and especially Samuel L. Jackson's performance, it's just so fucking good. <laughs> One of the things I liked the most in the movie is the heat, that you feel the heat, that the heat is a pivotal part of the story and the the heat rising and just how hot and unbearable it is for all the characters in the movie. Yeah. You can see it through the colors that they use in the movie. You can see it through, you know, is it Rosie Perez that she's dunking her head in ice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mookie's sister is having an entire scene just like in front of a fan trying to cool herself off. Just like things like that where you actually feel like hot watching the movie. Yeah, that was one of my biggest notes about this movie is I don't think I've ever seen another movie that did a better job of conveying heat which is such a difficult thing to do in a movie. That, you know, it's not it's not sense around. Temperature is not really a sense that you can get from anything but those elements of filmmaking when you're making a movie. And like from that shot of Rosie Perez putting her face in the sink with ice in it, where you kind of like see up at her face, I thought that's still so perfect. I love not just the way that heat itself is portrayed, Uh, I love all the montages of people in the neighborhood finding their own ways of trying to beat the heat. I especially love when they open up the fire hydrant on the street. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's such Mm -hmm. a portrayal of black joy. You know, there are many movies that have black characters and lots of movies that talk about race relations. But very few of them uh, and very few moments of them ever represent and consciously include moments of black people just enjoying life. So I also found that especially powerful because water hoses were one of the weapons that American police would use against black Americans whenever they protested or rose up to defend their own lives and rights. And of course, fire hoses also play a big role later in the climax of the movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Like, you would think it would get tedious, you know, like, oh, it's hot, it's hot, we get it. But he finds a way to make it, like, new and character-based every time. Yeah. Where you do get this reminder, and it's, like, very hard to forget that it's a very hot day. And yet it never kind of feels like he's it's overkill or anything. It's always, like, in service of the characters, and, like, it feels like what they would really be doing at that moment. I especially like that at the end... Um, when Sal and Mookie are talking after the fire, that Sal just 
offhandedly mentions they say it's going to be even hotter today mm-hmm. because clearly like this heat in the movie is like a metaphor for anger you know now that this riot happened like it's not like everything's solved <laughs> like it's just going to keep going it's it's an unsolvable yeah. thing and i and i thought that was a really interesting way to to say that without having to go out and say it yeah i totally yeah. felt the same way yeah totally agree i also think it helps really undercut the sense of finality that you might get from the movie climaxing with sal's pizzeria burning down like just for him to immediately follow that up with well it's the next day and it's going to be even hotter today I also think one of the most compelling representations of the heat and one of the best moments of character development in this movie is the scene where Mookie visits Rosie Perez's character Tina at her apartment. He delivers her a pizza and takes a long break as an excuse to come visit her in the middle of the day. And in this scene, he takes an ice cube and touches all of Tina's main erogenous zones. (laughs) And thanks God for each of her uh, 2,000 parts. (laughs) And that sequence with the ice cube is one of the most genuinely erotic things I have ever seen in anything ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think I remember seeing this in film school in in a big class full of people because I remember laughter when it's the shot of her of her tits with the ice cube (laughs) (laughs) the the extreme close-up of her breasts it's a nice scene you're just with two people and it's much slower and cooler and you actually feel like they're why they like each other and what that relationship is yeah and it's a great way to do a sex scene without doing a sex scene and yeah it even is another way in which we're seeing that it's a hot day because like not only is it cooling her off with ice but also like the reason that she says like we're not having sex is because it's too hot you know i can't be staying long anyhow long enough to do the nasty uh, no come on movie Wait a minute. First of all, it is too hot, all right? And if you think I'm going to let you get some, put your clothes on and leave here, and I'll see you a black ass for another week, you must be bugging. i see you tomorrow. Yeah, right. And my name is Boo Boo the Fool. So no nasty, huh? No. Tina, let's do something else. Then. What? Trust me. Trust you? Uh, Monkey, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. Remember your son? I do remember my son. His name is Hector, you know? What are you trying to say? I'm a bad father? And so, yeah, again, it's just like another way, like this is how these characters are, you know, dealing with it being hot. And then you, you move on to see how other characters are, but like that it's constantly like part of whatever's going on in the scene, even though, you know, the scene is actually, you know, sort of us learning more about their relationship, building a connection between them. I guess maybe like this is a good time to like, just talk about the character of Mookie and what we think about him because with Rosie Perez, um, you know, he has a child that he seems like he's neglecting pretty heavily. Like, they don't live together. They're not married. She's complaining that he doesn't come around enough. So, yeah, what do you guys think of, like, the character of Mookie? Like, I don't want to use, like, likability because that's such a kind of studio note word but um i can see like a version of this movie where he's you know more of a like i'm trying to get out of the hood kind of character like applying to harvard or something and yet this is a character who's just like a regular guy he has a job at a pizza shop he's just trying to basically make his paycheck he's not super attentive to rosie perez or her son and yeah i just thought that was an interesting choice to not try and make him more of a kind of heroic character or someone who you really are like rooting to do anything in particular. 
I think mm. because of where he ends up at the end, that he has to be like that, or that makes the most sense for for his arc because he's kind of like treading through life. He's got like a job, but it's not a great job. It doesn't pay him probably nearly enough. It's not very ambitious. He has a kid. He doesn't really see a girlfriend. He seems like to you know get along with when he's around. He doesn't seem to take a stand one way or another. And I think a lot of people feel apathetic like that, and that's why we relate to him. But I think because at the end he makes a choice that makes him a powerful character because we see where he's been the whole movie is just kind of not caring about anything. And finally, he decides to care and do something about it. Well, I don't know. I don't necessarily see it as he's uncaring. I think he's profoundly ambivalent, especially watching it this time and also kind of uh, watching some things of Spike Lee talking about his own kind of plans for the character and how he sees it. I see the ways in which he is internally conflicted, even in moments, and especially in moments where he's not doing all that much on the surface. I think of moments like there's a moment when Buggin' Out comes into Salas Pizzeria and is, is throwing a fit because all the pictures on the wall are pictures of Italian-American celebrities, and yet really basically the only patrons Salas Pizzeria has are Black folks who live in the neighborhood. And Mookie, Spike Lee's character in that whole sequence, goes through a really interesting kind of internal dilemma, you know, like having to respect Sal as his boss, but also trying to respect Buggin' Out out as like a friend of his and he's very carefully trying to tread that water and you f- you feel how exhausting that is for him and you feel or at least I can feel how constantly he has to do things like that where he has to be a kind of de facto mediator and in that way it made me understand his ambivalence a lot more it made me understand how trapped he would feel by his circumstances most of the time and especially this time it really helped me understand why he decides to do what he does at the end of the movie i appreciated chris i totally agree with you like i appreciate the fact that he's ambivalent in a way that we would want or maybe expect a similar character in other movies to be inherently searching and to be inherently ennobled by all of their character traits, you know, in a very overt and very obvious and on the nose kind of way. And I really appreciate that Spike Lee doesn't write or perform it that way. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you brought up about him being kind of caught between the two worlds, which isn't something I had thought about. He has to sort of placate to Sal a little bit, you know, in order to keep his job. So he has to kind of downplay, yeah, some of the conflict that the other guys in the neighborhood, mostly bugging out, are, you know, trying to stoke against this pizzeria. It just feels very like a real person that you would find in this neighborhood versus like sort of a screenwriterly, like, I'm going (laughs) to make him someone that you root for and make it like the tragedy of Mookie, like turning to the dark side or something, you know, it's not that at all. It's it, well, it's kind of the opposite of that instead of, you know, him kind of being corrupted and, and like giving into anger and giving up on his like whatever dreams the screenwriter would come up with. It's a character who stops being apathetic and actually does something. And it's kind of a positive thing in a way, even though I'm sure we'll like debate a little bit more about the ending. But like, you know, the fact He's that he actually does to... something is interesting. He's trying not to make waves. He's just trying to go about his business, you know live his life and and by the end he he's without without somebody forcing him to he decides to make a choice um Mm -hmm. to get involved 
what did you guys think of that m- montage of all the characters spewing slurs directly at the camera? Uh, I love it. Dago Wab, Guinea, Garlic Bread, Pizza Sling, and Spaghetti Benin, Victim on Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti, Solo Meal, Non Singer, Motherfucker. Gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken and biscuit eating, monkey ate, baboon, big die, fast running, high jumping, spear chucking, 360 degree basketball dunking, titsoon, spade, mulling Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty-eyed, mean old speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York, bullshit Reverend Sun Young Moon, some Olympic 88 Korean kickboxing sabadam bitch. You Goya bean eating 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, pointy shoes, red wearing, menudo, meet a meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker. Yeah, you! It's cheap. I got good price for you. Now catch it. How I'm doing? Chocolate, egg cream drinking, bagel and deluxe, banana, but this Jew asshole. Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all take a chill! You need to cool that shit out! He's done that trope a few times in his movies. The first time I saw it was the first of his movies, uh, where there's a kind of a different version of it in the 25th hour. But yeah, I mean, I really find it, I mean, for one, it's just funny, but I think it really serves a a strong purpose because there's so much, you know, strong, like racist language in this movie from, you know, many of the characters. And sometimes it's, it is surprising or, you know, it kind of makes you feel bad. But when you put it in this kind of a scene that's so comedic and you hear all of it back to back it kind of makes it lose its power like like a few of these words are, can actually be very hurtful and damaging but when you just like lay into a string of 60 of them they totally lose their power and I think that really just kind of points out like the fact that all these like kind of hateful things that are said are really just kind of constructs and, and words that have power because we kind of give them power but maybe don't necessarily mean anything ultimately. I think there's some truth in that. Um, and I also think the montage really works as kind of a music number or a dance number, uh, interrupting the main story for like a, you know, show stopping musical number. Hmm. It's like the whole cast is all singing all together, you know, and I just really love where it comes in the rhythm of the movie and how it starts to set up the final act that turns everything up to 10 and, you know, makes all of these characters like collide together. Yeah, I really like how that scene sits in the movie a whole lot. I also have to say, in terms of musical moments, I love Radio Rahim so much. I think he is so fucking great. It's a character who says so much with so little, and anytime he appears, I feel good. I'm happy <laughs> to see him. I really enjoy Radio Rahim. I have to say, he's kind of a jerk about his music, though. <laughs> Turn your music down. Okay, Sal. <laughs> I'm not wow. saying he, I'm not saying Wow. I'm not saying he should have been killed by the police, but I'm saying he probably should have turned his music down. It sounds like you were saying that. <laughs> Literally anyone else uh, on earth who is not white would be better qualified to talk about what boombox culture represents. 
it's a device and a technology that occupies a very unique place in black culture and especially in the development of hip hop culture. Cause like, especially in the eighties and early nineties when hip hop was coming to prominence, like most public spaces were being eradicated and closed off and privatized. And so the idea of like sharing music in public and playing music be a form of performance as well, also found in, in the form of the DJ. I think it's a huge kind of representational kind of like the the sword in the stone I think of like hip hop culture in a way where it's kind of like the figurehead object of not just playing hip hop but like sharing it in that sense of community that hip hop created. Yeah, I mean I think from sort of an objective standpoint like yes it is it is rude to play loud music <laughs> in a in a restaurant. But like I think this movie does such a good job of um, showing what the boombox means to Radio Rahim. I mean, his name is Radio. Like, it's obviously, like, a part of his identity. And so I think it's really clear when that scene happens that, like, Radio Rahim is, like, taking this as an affront to mm-hmm. Black culture and to him personally, you know, and it's not kind of just, like, I want to listen to my music. There's a lot more personal stakes and and cultural stakes to that. And, you know, I, I think there's something really interesting in this movie about objects um, that that it's an object that Radio Rahim really prides that gets smashed and kind of sets off mm-hmm. the violence that happens. It's a radio. And, you know, there's Sal's store, which... I think we'll also talk about more in the in the end. But there's also the sneakers that Bugganow is mad. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That have been stepped on and the car that gets wet. You know, there's all these people who are upset about, you know, their objects getting somehow soiled or broken. And I know that that's like a big point that Spike Lee has made is like people valuing objects and places in a way, you know, contrasting to human life. I found that really stood out this time, you know, in the in the conversations that we've had about looting in the last couple of weeks. Radio Rahim's brass knuckles, one of which says love, one of which says hate, were powerful objects and he kind of shows them off to Mookie and tells this metaphorical story, obviously, of the kind of endless struggle of life being static and life being the kind of tension between love and hate. Newest latest. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey, it was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. Down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate tailed by love.
that was a reference to the movie Night of the Hunter, you know, kind of showing the academic depth of Spike Lee's film knowledge and referencing a movie like that. But also, I just think it works very well within the kind of poetry of this world and this setting and this movie. And really, in terms of that character, it makes Radio Rahim seem kind of like a seer or a sage or a, like the neighborhood wizard in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not the guy playing all the hits at the radio station, but he's kind of the guy keeping a watchful eye on everything. I think kind of in maybe a parallel way to Ossie Davis's character. That's interesting about Radio Raheem, because, yeah, that it's true. He does really feel kind of wise beyond whatever this character is. And I'm not entirely sure where that comes from, if it's just this monologue that he gives, um, which is really one of the few kind of words that he speaks. Mm-hmm. Spike Lee was envisioning him as more of just kind of representing kind of the average kind of aimless street youth who is just kind of a little bit wayward and lost and is kind of more invested in in material than, you know, any sort of clear path for his future. And yet I don't think that's quite what the character is. I mean, you can kind of see him embodying that. But yeah, something about the character also feels yeah like almost mystical in a way and yet also like very much a part of this neighborhood his loss you know is felt in the end you know you you sense that the neighborhood is not going to be quite the same without this character so it's a really interesting thing that I'm, I'm not sure i can even quite point to like what exactly about the film it might be just the filmmaking and the way that the, the camera kind of has him speaking directly you know to camera and to the audience i think that's probably done with this character more than anyone else yeah that's that's really interesting I was also interested very much in talking about Smiley. Yeah, he's yeah. a character who's clearly developmentally disabled. I don't know if he's maybe deaf, but he is kind of one of these characters in the neighborhood who wanders around selling printed out copies of a photo that features Martin Luther King and Malcolm X uh, together, smiling together, meeting together. And like in terms of poetic symbolism or whatever, it's very representative of the the dialectic in this movie, which is, you know, the one on Radio Rahim's brass knuckles between love and hate. In this case specifically, the tension between using nonviolent resistance to a force of white supremacy that is inherently violent and the violent insistence where, you know, you meet violence with physical action and self-defense of yourself and in defense of your community. And that's a tension that gets felt in a bunch of different ways throughout many of the different character vignettes and many of the main characters and supporting characters. I, I don't know. I was I was curious what each of you actually like thought about Smiley and of that symbolism and the photo that he carries around. Well, it definitely wasn't subtle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it is not subtle. I would agree with that. I wasn't the biggest fan of that character. And I felt like the quotes at the end could have done that without that character because the quotes at the end of the movie are from Martin Luther King and then Malcolm X. So I didn't totally feel like that character was necessary. (laughs) That's kind of funny. I just read before we recorded that that character wasn't actually in the script. Oh. (laughs) And Spike Lee wanted to work with that actor and kind of found a way to put him in the movie as that character. Oh, all right. 
Well, it feels like that. Yeah, that kind of fits. Yeah, apparently the character was sort of in the first draft and then got cut out. And then the actor came back and really wanted to be in the movie and Spike wanted to make a part for him. So the actor did bring a lot to that character, though. He brought the idea of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. photo, which I think is strange just because it feels like so kind of ingrained in the movie. Also, the idea of him like taping that photo up in the burning pizzeria at the end. I, I can see why this character might feel unnecessary or kind of over the top. And you definitely could have the movie without him. But I found something, especially in this rewatch, where I really latched onto this character. Um, especially just his, too. his sadness um, in the end when, and, and confusion as things are going on. And I think maybe it's because I'm feeling those same ways right now and um just having you know there's a lot of ways that this character could go wrong and i don't really feel like this film um does does those things yeah just because representations of people um with developmental disabilities uh tend like are very often like kind of insulting in movies and this like didn't really strike me that way even though i could kind of see like where someone might make an argument for it that he's kind of um, a savant. But yeah, I don't know. I I felt like somehow this kind of character who was so just kind of pure, like really helped, like everyone else sort of has their own thing going on and they're, a lot of them are kind of acting performative, like bugging out is being very vocal about, you know, making sure that this pizzeria is representing black people on their walls and to have this other kind of character who's just so kind of genuine and, and, and feeling it in just sort of a heartfelt way, like felt really kind of yeah vital to the movie, at least on this watch yeah, to me. Yeah, Chris, um, amplifying what you're saying, I think each of these characters in the neighborhood has their own way of interacting with Smiley, and that really does help reveal character, too, and everyone in the city is, you know, kind of a caretaker for Smiley in some small way. It's like Smiley is like a kid of the neighborhood kind of and he's like everyone's child and no one's child and that symbol he's carrying around with him all the time you know in the form of those photos i found that very um tender and loving and and beautiful as like a symbol i enjoyed that uh and i didn't know how many of the aspects of his character that actor brought to it that's really cool I did also enjoy the fact that extra cheese is the same price as a photo of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. <laughs> also, was he saying that because he said a slice was one fifty, but then extra cheese was two? Does that mean the slice of the, does that mean the whole thing is two dollars, or it's two dollars more for a slice of extra two, cheese? N- it's it's two for the slice with extra oh, okay. cheese. Okay. Oh. Like, <laughs> These are not 2020 LA pizza prices. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, see, I thought it was so funny that the extra cheese was like more than the pizza. But okay, that, that makes yeah. sense. When he's talking to Mookie, I thought it was very interesting. John Turturro loves Eddie Murphy and he loves Prince and he loves Magic Johnson and he loves Eddie Murphy because they're more than black as he's trying to explain why he likes them. It's just a very interesting monologue that John Turturro's character gave about how he can pretty much be racist, but also like black people. It was an interesting, um, interesting thing to put in the movie. Fina, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince. Morris. Bruce. Prince. 
Bruce. Pina, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different. Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. Yeah, we've all known racist white people, but especially the kinds of racists who I grew up with, they all had their version of that spiel. They had their list of the black entertainers and celebrities who they thought, quote unquote, transcended blackness in their view, transcended it in order to be seen as fully human by them. But in every case, of course, it's you're talking about performers and entertainers whose blackness is central to everything about the art that they create and central to everything about their expression. And I thought that was one way in which John Turturro's character, which otherwise is is composed of very broad strokes, I think, <laughs> not super subtle, yeah. but I think it's a thing that complicates his character while also, again, just kind of like cementing the ways in which he is very much a, an overt racist. And Chris, I'm curious to hear your reaction too, but I just wanted to like throw in that mix. It's interesting to me the kind of trajectory of Italian-Americans in the context of this story and of this movie. Because when Italian-Americans, you know, first immigrated to America, became part of this quote-unquote melting pot, Italians were considered not culturally white. But even Sal's older generation, and especially his kids' generation, was one where Italian folks were not just part of the American fabric, but were culturally white by that time. So I thought that was an interesting thing to juxtapose against blackness, which has obviously a far longer history in America, going back even before our founding, but which is very deliberately and very clearly, even in this movie, considered as something separate from American and separate from the identity of being American in, in, in the meaning that the default of Americanness is whiteness. I will now read from my essay uh, in response. No, there's just, there's a lot. Um, I know. It's like, there's a lot. There's so much to that. Um. And th- and that scene, too, I feel like could also be its own movie and, in fact, kind of is. Uh, Spike Lee's Bamboozled is about basically how white audiences respond to Black entertainment and the ways in which, like, Black entertainers feel the need to kind of cater to that. But that's a whole different movie. But I, I do enjoy that that is in here. And it, it seems like a very pivotal point to touch on. And something that's just such a weird paradox, I think, in America, that not only are Black celebrities often very accepted and very popular, but they're almost the most popular, you know, especially like athletes are very deified, particularly a lot of Black athletes, like we see, you know, Mookie's wearing like a Michael Jordan jersey, they mentioned Magic Johnson, they are kind of seen as the very coolest celebrities. I mean, especially at this time, you know, Eddie Murphy and Bill Cosby were some of the, you you know, biggest entertainers out there, Michael Jackson. So it is crazy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense really that you could, you know, hold these celebrities up and and in almost a worshipful way and yet still demean them and then feel that they're somehow inferior because of the color of their skin. I mean, it's one of just, I think, something that doesn't make any sense in human psychology is just kind of fucked up in that way. But <laughs> yeah. 
Spike Lee did kind of rail against um, the idea of, um, sorry, Becky, uh, Back to the Future and uh, Forrest Gump. Wait, what about it? The scene where Michael J. Fox, uh, which we just talked about, where he um, invents Johnny Be Good and the well, dance. I, I, said yeah. it was pro- I said it was maybe problematic. <laughs> No, I know. I just know that you like the that movie and that scene. But yeah, he said that in um, Forrest Gump, where also Elvis learns his moves from a little white kid instead of um, where oh, rock and roll yeah. actually came from, which was from black music. And he said that that was kind of the inspiration for this. But I find the scene very fascinating on a psychological level and also a character level, kind of repulsive because it just makes me like as kind of horrid as John Turturro's character is throughout this movie. I think this is the scene that really kind of just makes my skin crawl mm-hmm. from the way he he says this, you know, to Mookie's face as if Mookie isn't like having a reaction to this. That like, <sighs> yeah, you know, it's just like how yeah. how. I mean, you shouldn't say it at all. You know, you shouldn't even really think this way. But, like, to just, like, say it, you know, like, to someone like this is just, like, it's kind of evil. But um, I also find it, like, interesting that um, Spike Lee made the choice, you know, that the the worst character in this movie is not Sal. Like, I think it would have been a much, like, neater, you know, kind of thing. Like, I was talking about the character of Mookie could have been a much sort of tidier screenwriter kind of character. And in the same way, Mm. like, Sal could have easily been, like, the bad, you know, guy, but instead it's, you know, they make Sal in most ways, very likable in most scenes. And his, yet his son is really the one who's kind of spouting these kind of vile, vile things like this. Yeah. And I appreciate that. It's not overly simplistic. You know, I also now see a parallel between that racism and the bigotry toward the character of the bodega owner, Kim, who's a Korean guy. I think there is a way in which this movie shows us an image of white supremacy, you know, in the story of Sal and his sons. But then it also shows us an image of bigotry coming from the black community and especially the older generation toward that bodega owner. The owner, Kim, and his family are clearly not culturally white in America, but they're also not black and not being oppressed in the same ways that black folks are. And we'll talk about how this plays out after the climax of the movie, but I really enjoyed the scene where three older black men, ML, Coconut Sid, and Sweet Dick Willie, who appear in a few vignettes in Do the Right Thing, are just sitting and talking against this one wall. The red wall. Yep, the red wall. Yeah, and they're arguing about the virtues of a Korean immigrant running a bodega in a black neighborhood and, you know, talking about how they don't own businesses and they don't own stores. And it's interesting because this is one of the first and only movies that I've ever heard mention gentrification, like much less have the story be in part about the results of it. In Los Angeles, we're all very familiar with gentrification, but I thought this really showed how broad Spike Lee's vision was, that he found so many different avenues and different characters we don't normally see much effort by other filmmakers to represent. And it really helps show the experience of living in a white supremacist society in a really complicated and pretty nuanced way for a movie. I found the way that the character Kim and the community relate and don't relate to each other uh, to be very interesting and dramatically rich. Yeah, I like the way that this film just kind of presents ideas about race and it doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily feel like Spike Lee agrees or disagrees with them. You know, they're just kind of out there. Uh, One of them 
is, yeah, in one of those scenes against the Red Wall where uh, one of the guys is complaining about the Korean store owners and then someone else, you know, kind of says something about how, like, why don't Black people, you know, kind of create businesses in their own communities? Why is there a Korean business and a, and a white business here? And why, you know, as far as we don't we really see, like, a Black-owned business in this neighborhood? And that's, you know, an idea that I think Spike was just, you know, kind of came to him and was like, I'm going to put this in the movie and one of the characters and it's something to think about and yet I don't think it the movie isn't necessarily making a statement on it it's just kind of like hey this is an observation that I made and then you know kind of goes on to another one yeah and one of the only lines after that before the scene wraps up is like one of the three guys says like Coco you got off the boat too you know because they're talking about the Korean store owner like being like fresh off the boat in that stereotypical way for them to like you know invoke and reveal that one of those three characters this is also an immigrant to America and wasn't born here originally either. Exactly as you're saying, Chris, it's dramatically successful, but also kind of playful in a way. The way that Spike Lee refuses to let you have an easy answer and refuses to let you think or get away with thinking that there's no nuance to all of this. Yeah, I don't think this movie really provides answers. I think it's really good at providing a story that provokes discussion because the whole thing with do the right thing did Mookie do the right thing at the end is it possible to do the right thing what is the right thing I think the movie's not trying to answer that it's trying to to kind of tell you that it's kind of unknowable yeah well I mean I think that kind of is set up earlier in the film when the title of the film is spoken by DeMayer and he just kind of says always do the right thing kind of out of the blue and Mookie's just like that's it <laughs> and he's like, that's it. Easy. And he's like, yeah, and he's like, easy. I got it. Boom. Come in, Doc. Man, I got it going. I'm working, I'm working, doctor. I'm working. Doctor. This is the mayor talking. All right, all right. Doctor. Come on, what, what? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. Yeah, and, and I love the kind of flippant way that that is presented, but also, yeah, like I think everyone kind of in some ways like thinks they're doing the right thing. Like that, you know, bugging out feels like he Mm. is doing the right thing by, you know, making sure that there are black people on the wall of this pizzeria. Um, Sal feels that he's done the right thing because he's, you know, part of this community and he's fed them, you know, and that his pizza place is kind of sacred, you know, and, and he feels and like he feels like he's doing the right thing in like defending his heritage by keeping all those Italian American heroes up on the wall. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think like there is no right thing. Yeah, like kind of like you're saying, like everything is the right thing to somebody. And to the extent that there is a right thing, you know, I think with um, Mookie being so passive, like the fact that he has kind of a choice, which is to let the death of Radio Rahim go by or react and and make some kind of a statement that says, I'm angry about this and not just let like the next day happen and the pizza place is still there and he's going to go back to work as if nothing ever happened. Like, I think like just like responding to what he feels is the right thing. And I think that's kind of the extent to the sense that there is a right thing or a wrong thing. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a simple question at all. Well, and I, I think we should give the kind of plot detail of what happens. Sal opens up the pizzeria or keeps it open super late at night just to give out a couple more slices at the end of the night. 
and Radio Rahim comes in with his boombox turned all the way up, and Sal loses his shit, grabs a baseball bat, and completely destroys the boombox, which precipitates, you know, like Radio Rahim pulls Sal, just picks him up and pulls him and basically starts trying to beat the shit out of him. And that escalates and escalates, becomes a street fight. And that fight scene is just so tense and so fucking sad because especially after the first time you've seen this movie, you you know where it's going. But Spike Lee has an almost Hitchcock level of skill uh, at building suspense, especially throughout every part of this fight scene, which is, you know, starts very intensely and very loudly but then it becomes this street fight and then the shithead cops from earlier show up and they put radio rahim in a chokehold and kill him and it's so visceral and horrifying and was so visceral and horrifying the first times i saw the movie but especially in light of being in a time where we all know and many of us could rattle off the names of a dozen or more black people who've been killed by police chokeholds just in the past couple of years it's a very traumatic moment it's crazy that this movie was made three years before the la riots and and 30 years before what we're protesting now and nothing (laughs) changed it was very hard to watch it yeah, it's very hard Nothing to changed. watch it knowing that it's not a reaction to those things, but it like it it predicted them. Well, yeah, I mean, well, it, I mean, it's yeah. it's also a reaction to some of them. Yeah, I, they list the names of some yes, people in this true. movie, and they were actual like chokehold. That's victims. true. I think I just meant in um, the last like twenty years, even. I mean, it, it was really hard to watch, specifically the choking of Radio Rahim, which is, I think, rightfully very graphic in this movie, and and really makes you feel that loss. And you know, the fact, the way that his you know kind of body falls, and and you see the love one of his knuckle rings on. And he's just, you know, kind of staring at us for quite a long time with vacant eyes. And just, you know, because we have literally seen this happen on the George Floyd video and and other videos. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I cried this time watching it, which I, I don't think I did earlier, just because, you know, it just it resonates more now um, having having seen it happen and having seen not only that, but just all the pain that it's caused. And, and yeah. And having seen the cops get away with it every single time, you know, it's it's also that, you know, because the movie doesn't spend any time on that aftermath, but it, it really doesn't even have to because we know, we know who those police are. We know who they are the whole time. In the wake of that truly horrific moment, basically all of these people we've followed throughout this whole movie are, are kind of assembled outside Sal's pizzeria, just completely dumbstruck. Um, at what's happened they none of them can seem to believe that radio rahim is dead and mookie spike lee's character you know takes a takes a, a, cup, a couple of beats you see mookie like looking at sal and looking at all of his neighbors and then he walks quickly across the street he takes the lid off a garbage can takes the bag of trash out of it brings the can back across the street and throws it through sal's window I think what's interesting is that to go back to the title and doing the right thing, that if he had done nothing, the mob may have started beating up Sal and his sons. And he followed what felt instinctual to him and 
directed their anger at an object that can be replaced. And even if that wasn't his intention in the moment, like that may have been the right thing to do to save Sal and his son's lives from these angry people. But I think that shows that there's no right way like it's interpretive and it's if he had done nothing they they may have been beat up themselves and he would have lived with this you know anger towards his friend's death but when he followed this other path he started a riot and sal's store was destroyed it just it seems like you're damned if you do damned if you don't so all you can do is just listen to yourself That's been put forward as a theory as to why Mookie did what he did. Spike Lee himself weighed in on this and specifically said no, that wasn't his intention. Mookie had just seen his best friend murdered in front of his face, so he really was just reacting from his anger and his horror. But also, I think you're exactly right. Even if that was the reason Mookie felt that that was the right thing to do in the moment, it might have been the most forward-thinking and also merciful way for anyone to react to that situation. But regardless of, you know, what emotions Mookie was feeling at that moment and feeling like was the right thing to do, and whatever he felt the right thing to do was, he still did the most forward-thinking and maybe merciful thing that anyone could have done in that situation. In the immediate aftermath, of course, everyone was going to come for Sal and his kids, because it was Sal's reaction to this that set this all in motion and made it inevitable that Radio Rahim was going to be murdered. Yeah, I mean, I also think that there's something... I, I love the title to this movie simply because, like what seems like kind of a 1950s platitude um, is -hmm. actually like really complex when you apply it to this movie. Um, But uh, I think there's another sense that like everyone is doing the right thing until the police (laughs) kill someone. And so Mm -hmm. why would these people then continue to do the right thing supposedly and just like is the right thing that they're supposed to just let this happen and take it and move on you know like how dare you tell them to do the right thing after that you know and and i think there's anger like there's a way in which the title almost becomes mocking you know like oh yeah do the right thing sure (laughs) like assuming there even is a right thing assuming that doing a thing that's right for you individually won't literally kill somebody uh, somebody else there's a very kind of defiant note to the title especially you know once you reach the end and that line is um said by demayer earlier in the movie and he's the character who is older and is used to a society that's a little more docile and you know more catering to the police and and to like law and order and yet that i don't think that that's necessarily the the right thing you know that's going to lead to more incidents like this i think there's definitely a sense that you know somehow you know speaking out and making things uncomfortable for people is necessary to start these conversations you know if they did the right thing supposedly in the end of this movie like we probably wouldn't really be talking about this movie that much you know because it wouldn't there wouldn't be as much to talk about like you have to kind of confront these things and and make them visible in order you know to facilitate the conversations that lead to action yeah and the only other thing i wanted to note um was i i only noticed this time i'd never noticed it any time any other time i'd uh watched the movie that um Smiley has a line like just near the end of that where he's like just realizing himself that one of the police was black. (laughs) 
They killed him. They killed Radio Raheem's murder. They did it again, just like Michael Stewart. Murder. Eleanor Bumpers. Murder. Damn, man, it ain't safe in all fucking neighborhoods. Never was. Never will be. We ain't gonna stand for this shit no more, Sal. Hear me? Ain't gonna stand for the fucking police. Punk. It's as plain as day. They didn't have to kill the boy. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that too. And it's very like underplayed, like it's kind of a throwaway line in a way. I mean, the content of it isn't, but the way it's delivered kind of is. I mean, that's one of the things I really liked about that whole um, riot scene is just that there's there's a, a point where, you know, everyone is shouting something and you can make out some of what they're saying, but a lot of it you can't. And that's really what it has felt like this last couple of weeks too where everyone mm-hmm. is you know making their opinion known and it's almost deafening the amount of different things that are being said and most of them are really valid too and everyone has a point but it's just kind of like overwhelming to take in like all of the complexity around I mean in this movie just this one act um, in front of a pizzeria and you know we're experiencing it on kind of a national level but this kind of thing just causes like that much reaction and and that much kind of different kinds of pain and different opinions being expressed. So I want to talk a little bit then about um, the next uh, day, which um, features another kind of key scene of the movie where um, Mookie and Sal, you know, have another um, interaction. What did you guys think of that scene? I thought it was interesting. He comes back to say, hey, you got to pay me for the week. You'd think that somebody who, you know, started a riot in your business wouldn't, you know, have the audacity to come and ask for that money. But he, I think he clearly stands behind his actions and thinks that he's right. And also the guy owes him money. (laughs) So he needs to get paid for what he's owed as opposed to, you know, being ashamed for how it ended up and, you know, never wanting to see Sal again and, and slinking off. So I thought that was a really good post scene for that character to show that he stands by what he did. Yeah, I think I think he's definitely more of a man the next morning. And I don't know if that means he's any more like morally certain, you know, it, you don't get that up close inside his headspace in that moment. Um, but I appreciated the fact that he went back to get his money. I appreciated that he didn't apologize to Sal um, because very clearly the loss of life was a thing that mattered so much infinitely more in the scale of things than, than did the loss of some property. Um, and you know, like, like Mookie says in that moment, like Sal's place is surely insured. Like he's going to get, he's going to be made whole and radio Rahim was never going to be made whole. The, the community that loved him was never going to be made whole. Um, and, and that was Sal's community too, whether Sal was too angry to recognize that in the moment or not. Um, so I, I found that scene the next day just really powerful um, and powerful again in a way that doesn't give you real finality. It doesn't give you real you know, answers, solutions to all of this. Um, but that shows you that those 
horrible moments and those uprisings and those reactions and everything have consequences that ripple out and that people are changed by them even though if even though you don't necessarily keep following them to learn how exactly they've changed or will change yeah one of the things that spike lee has called out about this movie is that a lot of um audience members you know are upset over the store and spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about you know like is Mookie unlikable for throwing the trash can or how could he do that? Or, you know, all the kinds of things and forget about Radio Raheem. And yet like the Spike Lee also, he spends a lot more time on the store and the destruction of the store. That's what you see, you know, kind of the end of the riot, you know, you're seeing it burn down. Um, And it is supposed to be, I think a little sad. And then the next day we're back at the store and we're not, you know, I don't know if Radio Rahim is even mentioned again. Um, And so I found that interesting. And what it kind of, you know, pointed out to me is that, like, if you look at this story as Sal's story, like this, like, it's a tragedy for Sal. Like, it ends with this store, like, kind of wrecked and that, you know, you have the sense that he's going to have to start over. Like, that, that's Sal's arc. Mookie's story has a tragedy in it, but it ends with resignation instead. Like it doesn't end on a tragic sense for this character. Like we don't really sense that he is, I I, I agree that he's, you know, maybe a little bit more of a man and, and going to do something, but um, I don't think he's also not like greatly changed. Like it, like we talked about earlier, the next day is going to be hotter. Like there's the sense that this is just going to, probably happen again in some way, in some form. And, and it feels like there is really a resignation in his composure, you know, even if there's something about him that's maybe more resolute now uh, that he's acted, he still knows what the stakes are. He still knows the world that he lives in uh, exists at the sharp end of the sword. And he's not going to be able to get out from on that. Yeah, like the black community doesn't really have the luxury of just stopping and feeling sorry for themselves the way that a white man does. They have to just kind of keep on going or else, you know, they're never going to overcome, you know, some of these issues. And then, of course, after the movie ends, before the credits start, you see a quote from Martin Luther King talking about nonviolent resistance. And next to Malcolm X quote, talking about having to meet violence with violent resistance in the cause of liberation. And I think that's the telling of what Do the Right Thing has shown us this whole time, where there isn't ever really an easy resolution between these two concepts that seem so polar opposed in one way, Mm -hmm. but are kind of part of the same moral continuum when you're talking about what it takes to actually struggle and liberate yourself in a society that makes you less than fully human, especially when it's also the society that's the only home you've ever known and the only community that you've been ever, uh, that you've ever formed. Yeah. uh, Roger Ebert was a big uh, champion of this film and, you know, that's kind of the side that he fell on. And I think, Um, A lot of critics were confused by the two quotes and thought that, you know, it meant that Spike Lee was confused about his message. And I, yeah, I mean, I, 
Yes. <laughs> oh my God. I really feel like he is basically putting them together as a question. And I think also do the right thing is not a statement. It is a question, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. we, we don't know what the right thing is. And even these two, you know, two of the greatest, um, figures in hi- in history, you know, kind of couldn't agree on what the right thing is. And so, um, I really love that it ends that way. And with just like, like kind of like just leave the theater and discuss it and figure it out for yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's also really interesting because like not to go, I won't go too into it, but the, the trajectory of Malcolm X's own approach and his own morality changed very greatly, um, especially near the latter part of his life. Um, And in some ways he was getting more toward the kind of MLK side of things, but also like when Martin Luther King was nearing the end of his life, he was starting to radicalize even more and, and MLK was organizing like mostly white sanitation workers. um, And he was spending the end of his life trying to create a working class movement of all races in this country to take on, uh, militarism, uh, white supremacy, and capitalism, like, and by name, all three of those by name, he called them the three evils. Um, so again, it's like, I, I think the, the version of history that we're taught in popular culture tells us that MLK and Malcolm X were always polar opposites, but, you know, being humans and being people who grew and changed over time, they each had their own trajectory too. Um, and especially like knowing a bit more about that now, I think it makes that extra special. I think it makes it extra thoughtful the way that Spike Lee deliberately juxtaposes those two figures, um, both both to tell us how little is changed, obviously, both to tell us how much those different approaches remain kind of unresolved Um but but also again, Chris, like you're saying, like to to pose it as a question, um, and not at all pose it as a sentence that ends with a period. So I saved uh, reviews for the end because I thought these would come <laughs> uh, hmm. be a little more interesting after we had talked to the about the context. I'm going to read just a few <laughs> quotes. Uh, quick quotes from reviews and then a longer one. Like I said, like the film was really well reviewed overall. A lot of critics were a big champion. Uh, Ebert was a big champion of this and pretty much, you know, understood the nuance here. But uh, here's some critics who did not. Mm. Joe Klein of New York Magazine said, if black kids act on what they see, Lee may have destroyed his career in that moment. Speaking of um, the trash can through the window, David Denby of New York Magazine (laughs) said, the end of this movie is a shambles, and if some audiences go wild, he's partially responsible. Jesus. And uh, Stanley Crouch of The Village Voice said, do the right thing for all its wit is the sort of rancid fairy tale one expects of the racist, whether or not Lee actually is one. (laughs) Wow, he just like crouched and took a shit, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, this is several of them, but there were a lot of critics who were worried that this would incite um, that that African-American audiences couldn't see a movie about this and and, like not somehow get stirred up themselves and and repeat what they were seeing in the movie. They were, there was even some, you know, discussion like, should we release it in the summer? Um, because it's mm. hot and, you know, the black audience might <laughs> somehow 
might feel justified in reacting <laughs> to police brutality. Yeah. Right. Um, I saved the best for last because I honestly tried to see if this w- review was a parody of some kind. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> was it written by The Onion? Because I couldn't find much response to it. And I, so I, I don't even know. But anyway, here is Murray Kempton of Newsday. Thank God it wasn't Rita. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do the Right Thing is the newest entry in the expanding catalog of films inspired by Italian-American family virtues. What? (laughs) Oh, it gets worse. If it is less engaging than Moonstruck, it can be commended for the earnestness of its effort to convey the suffering and final defeat of a rational man by an irrational world. (laughs) What? The protagonist of these struggles is Sal, (gasps) proprietor of a pizzeria on a block. Identified as part of Bedford Stuyvesant, a section of Brooklyn reserved for persons of color through generations lost in time. Their debate is resolved by a climax when the neighborhood rises up to sack, pillage, and loot Sal's pizzeria, and Mookie opens the assault by throwing a garbage can through its window. Art cannot be art unless its hero has an antagonist worthy of him. Mookie is unfit for the challenge simply because if Sal is not without his flaws, Mookie is without anything else. He is not just an inferior specimen of a great race, but beneath the decent minimum for humankind itself. He neglects his job, his child, and its mother, and shows no trace of feeling for any interest except his own. (laughs) Yikes. I'm going to... I'm going to need a second to recover from this. Wait, so are, are we sure this was dated like contemporaneously yes. to the movie? Yes. Wow. So it, it was not written on Reddit or 4chan <laughs> is what you're Newsday, saying. You said. No. Yeah, I found it in Newsday and I found a re- like a letter to the editor that was written in response to it, but I couldn't find anyone else really calling this out like it should be but well, I like there was to... no social media in 1989 so i it's guess uh, i mean this is a real hot take that's that's a hot take that's yikes that is pure yikes i read snippets of it and i like desperately searched for the rest of the review which i eventually found <laughs> because i was like i was waiting for some kind of like yeah just kidding you know like i get it you know some kind of acknowledgement that Wow. I didn't see it. So, I mean, as far as I can tell, this is a real reaction <laughs> from a person. Uh, hard as that may be to believe. Um, wow. Yeah. I'm amazed you didn't say that the restaurant was the protagonist of the movie at this point. <laughs> 12 Years Good a Slave God. is about the slave owner, you see? <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. As we kind of close out on this topic, you know, I just wanted to speak to Spike Lee's reputation as um, an angry black man, Mm. which a lot of these reviews also called out, uh, especially the ones that were not as favorable. And I really find that so wrong. Like, I don't think Do the Right Thing is an angry movie. I mean, it has anger in it, but I think it's a sad movie and a very thoughtful movie. But like, this is not the movie that I would have expected. And the whole image of Spike Lee, as I've watched more of his movies, I mean, I don't get searing anger from them. I mean, I, I think that anyone would be angry about a lot of these things, but they're also very clear-eyed and fair. And, and yeah, often, I just, and I often incredibly funny and often incredibly charming. And I think this speaks to not just the racism and inherent white supremacy of mainstream American culture, but especially of the eminent whiteness of American movie critics, their inability to 
I mean, even have a basic foundational understanding of racism and how it works through our culture, but especially an inability to weigh the work of black filmmakers in any kind of fair light. You know, the growing up, I always had that image of Spike Lee as the angry black filmmaker and that idea of his movies being taboo in some way that didn't just come from nothing. That came out of a very conscious racism in the way that American culture responds to Spike Lee's existence as a black filmmaker. And I still think that even though he's become so institutionalized within the mainstream Hollywood system, I think there's a way in which he's still pigeonholed as just an angry black filmmaker, when even just this movie, Do the Right Thing, contains so much humanity and so many aspects in it, uh, in joy and love and hate and heat, (laughs) how we build our communities and get along within them or not. And it is angry, but to try to reduce it just to that is clearly just to dismiss it, to be afraid of engaging with everything that is really here, out of an insecurity and a fear, I think, that doesn't exist just on the part of mostly white movie critics, but in many white Americans who are afraid to even try to understand Because, you know, not trying to understand makes it much easier to think that you're doing the right thing and that you're not culpable in what's going wrong, Um, especially when you're not doing the right thing and especially when you are in some way culpable for what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but like this movie does not ask black audiences to go out and cause a riot because one of the last lines is register to vote. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. It's said by um, Mr. Senior Love Daddy, like right as, you know, the, the film's ending. Now the news and weather. Our mayor has commissioned the Blue Ribbon panel, and I quote, to get to the bottom of last night's disturbance. The city of New York will not let property be destroyed by anyone, end quote. His honor plans to visit our block today. Maybe he should hook up with our own, the mayor, Bahama Big. The love daddy says, register to vote. The election is coming up. There's no end in sight from this heat wave, so today the cash money word is chill. That's right, C-H-I-L-L. When you hear chill, call in at 555-L-O-B-E and you'll win cash money, honey. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy coming at you from what's last on your dial, but first in your hearts. And that's the quintessential truth, Ruth. I had not noticed that before either, but um, it really struck me this time. Um, The movie was made um, right before the um, mayoral election in New York City, Um, where Ed Koch was uh, going up against the first uh, black mayor of New York City, uh, David Dinkins. Oh, wow. And so, you know, Ed Koch ended up losing that election. And so I find that just so kind of funny, (laughs) you know, darkly funny that 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 was their worry. And yet people apparently did go out and vote. And that's as relevant as ever now. Hmm. Chris, was Rudy Giuliani the next mayor after Dinkins? Yeah, I think it was. That was when the real white backlash uh, was institutionalized politically in New York City. That's when it, the way that America describes that history is that's when we cleaned up New York. But that was when the fascism and authoritarianism of the police went into overdrive. Um, that's when 
kind of gentrification started really going into hyperspeed. Um, that's like the, the Giuliani era was kind of in a way a, a prediction of what would come for all of America, you know, where a lot of the real gains of the civil rights movement uh, were very actively reversed and where we were all kind of collectively ruled by a white backlash. Um, and I mean, I know it's going beyond like the discussion of this film to talk about, but but that in particular really sticks with me now because I think that that kind of white backlash is what has defined our whole lifetime in America. Um, and I think we're finally in a moment where it's on very, very obvious display all around us. And so I, I hope that a lot of other people who wouldn't have been able to see it are able to see it now. Um, but I also hope that like a movie like this is one that people take the, the opportunity to see, especially if they haven't seen it before, especially if they haven't seen any Spike Lee movies before. Um, and, and especially if they're white uh, and want to not be spoon fed answers, um, but want to try to see and empathize and be put in the place more of, of these people living experiences that we wouldn't have. Yeah, I I would love to second that and just say, yeah, this is a movie to go to if you are looking to ask questions and not just get answers. And if you're willing to kind of go beyond, you know, the the two hours that this movie runs and actually like continue thinking about those questions afterwards, because uh, even after seeing this movie three times now, um, and reading a lot about it, I still have questions and I'm still thinking about it. um, And it you know, I think it has that effect on, or at least can have that effect on everyone who's willing to engage with it. I agree. Um, yeah, for sure. I definitely recommend, I mean, watch this movie now. It's happening today. <laughs> it's happening right now. Yeah, the movie ends with a dedication to um, a series of uh, Black people who were killed by racist violence and police violence. I think if you made it today, uh, the main thing you would want to change is the names shouted out by uh, people in the riot scene. You'd have to update it and it would go on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of, you know, our usual ending to the show where we ask you to donate, I would, you know, encourage you to donate to a cause related to Black Lives Matter. There are a lot of them out there. Um, I donated to Color of Change. That's one, but there are many, I'm sure. We'll post some links because I also really want to support people donating to bail funds right now. That's become a huge phenomenon, especially during these most recent protests, because amid the coronavirus pandemic, as Chris mentioned at the top of the show, Black Americans are considerably more at risk of catching coronavirus because more of them are essential workers, quote unquote. And they're also far more likely to die from coronavirus and not get proper medical treatment. And in the criminal justice context, anyone who's getting arrested at one of these protests is being put directly at risk for coronavirus. American police are cramming people into the backs of police vans, leaving them for five to six hours apiece before even processing them. So I say that to say that these bail funds help bail people out of jail before they are forced to be put physically even more at risk. 
risk just for trying to stand up for their lives. Um, so hopefully we'll put up some links to bail funds because um, those are kind of being organized across almost every state right now. Um, and, and also it's Pride Month. Um, and there are some bail funds that are specifically to benefit LGBTQ people. Um, so please, if you have any funds to donate, please put them toward directly helping the people who are on the very real front lines of this protest movement right now. Yeah, and on that note, um, also, you know, we usually ask people to follow us. I would say go ahead and follow us if you want to, but also seek out some, you know, Black critics, writers, activists, people who will kind of diversify the perspectives that you're seeing, especially people who are talking about this right now. There are a lot of them out there. It's not, you know, super hard to find people who are really vocal about this, but um, I think it's really important to, you know, just kind of be taking in a lot of different perspectives, particularly from Black people who are living this experience. And as we close out, we're going to have a moment of silence, uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds to think about Black lives that have been lost to police violence and racist violence. <laughs> 